You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. This month on Common Grace, we're talking about atonement theory. And although we've briefly touched on it in our previous episodes with Greg Boyd, we felt that it deserved a conversation of its own. So today we'll be talking about some of the lenses that you can view atonement theory through, as well as talking about how to approach deep theological topics like this one. As we close out this year, we just want to say thank you so much for tuning in with us on this journey so far. Your involvement has made this show possible, and if you'd like to help us continue this podcast, please consider rating, reviewing, and donating. If you'd like to donate, you can go to whitewaterchurch.org give, or click on give in our show notes. Thanks for all your support. Now let's dive into our conversation. Well, welcome to this episode of Common Grace. Today we're doing something a little bit different. We're actually interviewing our interviewer. We're going to be talking about atonement theory, what it is, what it means to us as Christians, and kind of the different lenses that we can look at that through. Atonement theory really just being an important part of our faith. It's a cornerstone of what we believe as Christians. It's kind of this pinnacle moment of the Jesus story. What did Jesus do on the cross and why did he do it? So today we're we're going to be talking all about that. We've mentioned it in a couple different episodes, but George, we're super excited to have you here and to have this conversation. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation too. I think uh, it's an important one. I think it's also interesting and fascinating for people. We've had a lot of interest when atonement was brought up in some of our other podcast conversations this last year. And so we thought we'd just dig a little bit deeper into it. I had a little trepidation, a little bit of like, oh yeah, wow, this is a big topic. Looking back at some of my old stuff learned that I learned in seminary and some dust off some old books, looked at some newer ones. I've always have an interest in theology, so I always like to keep up with some of the the current thought and developing thought on these things. This is a subject that spiritual giants who are much smarter than me <laughs> have tackled <laughs> and disagreed on and had tensions with or even changed their own opinions on. And so as we approach it, my, one of my goals is just to help us know how to approach a theological subject that has maybe some areas of disagreement or tension or like it can have some triggers for some Christians. Yeah, Some people can take it very lightly. Some people it like means everything and you have to walk and tread very lightly around it. And so I, I just think it's very important to have a maybe a, a humble approach to theology, something that we can actually discuss, that we come to with an attitude of learning. And we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to feel like we need to live up to something or pretend we more, know more than we do. <laughs> yeah. I certainly have gaps in my in my own knowledge and happily acknowledge that. You know, I'm a pastor. I've been a Christian a long time. I'm a, I'm a preacher's kid. I've been around this kind of stuff, culture of, of theologizing and thinking. And I just think it, that it's really important to be able to know how to approach these things so that we can learn, we can learn from others, and we can help others learn coming to it to seek to understand, I think it's just so important. So that's my hope for this. And we'll kind of uh, look at a few things. I know you got some questions for me, so maybe we can can start there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I love the way that you phrased that. I mean, that's really the goal of of common grace, right? You know, to be able to come together, to learn about topics that we might not fully understand, to to be open to learn the how to disagree with yeah, each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if Christians were known for that, like kindness and charity toward those they disagreed with. Yeah. The more people I tell about common grace and some of the topics that we've covered, the more people are like, oh, your church is talking about stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Uh, I did forget to mention, we also have Tobin with us today. He's usually the guy that's running all of the recording equipment, but he's chosen to join us for this conversation. You might call me a producer. You might. <laughs> but I'm the third voice. Hello, everyone. 
Well, we kind of had this idea for this particular episode after Greg Boyd's episode on Christian nationalism, and there's a little bit of conversation about atonement theory within that. Yeah. That guy doesn't have any any energy, does he? No, no. He's super easy to edit, uh, <laughs> which, is, which is great. Very calm. I love it. He's so passionate about the stuff that he talks about. His episodes are, are some of my favorites. But yeah, as I was kind of talking to some different people about those episodes, they were like, oh yeah, atonement theory. And I was like, yeah, it's great. It's super important. And they were basically were like, what is it? And I found myself, being someone who knows a bit about it, been in church for a really long time, I found myself probably being in a category that a lot of our listeners and a lot of people find themselves in, which is this space of being able to kind of peripherally explain what atonement theory is. I have some understanding of it, but my description of it isn't short. I'm probably not using any of the right terminology, and I can't really grasp the topic, not like I feel like I should be able to as a Christian. And so I started having conversations with people about atonement theory and realizing that not only myself, but a lot of people don't have the firm grasp that I thought maybe we should have, and I never thought to check on it. So I guess let's start with the easiest question, which is what what is atonement theory? <laughs> I'm going to start with a verse just to like as a cornerstone for this conversation. But 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, this is a classic kind of starter for talking about atonement. But it says this, Paul's writing this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. So according to like this larger narrative, this biblical narrative that Paul knows about and has been following, the Christ event happens in his life where he's thrown to the ground blinded, and he thought he could see, he thought he knew, he thought he was pursuing and following God, and the very God that he was claiming to be serving before he really knew Christ, the God he claimed to be serving, he was actually fighting and resisting. And so the atonement, the way he understood Jesus, like was fundamentally shifted how he saw the Bible, like he knew the Bible through and through, but the Jesus event changed his vision and his understanding. So a lot of Paul's theology, you'll, you'll even even through some of his writings, you'll see him grappling with some of this. It's dynamic. It's not just static. Sometimes we think of like theology, like like the atonement or people talking about end times, people talking about Christology, study of Christ, ecclesiology, study of church. They think it's just like this static, like Paul just knew it all, like when he was blinded and then he, God gave him a sight again. He's like, oh, he knows everything and he went after it. No, he was developing his theology. You see him grappling with all this stuff, women in ministry, how to co- reach another culture. What do you do with the Greeks? Uh, what do you do with like... <laughs> yeah, what, do, what do, you do you do with those guys? <laughs> with like the non-Jewish people that are finding Christ and the Holy Spirit's at work. Like, what do you do? And and so like he was fundamentally shifted, like his understanding. Um, I, I think that we start here... He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, this grand narrative, that he was buried, that he was raised to the third day according to the scriptures. He always comes back to that according to the scriptures in alignment with the story. And uh, Jesus changes everything for him. And I think, you know, if we let him, he changes it for us. I grew up in a very progressive town in a very conservative church. And so I kind of got to experience both worlds and hear the questions and the language and the worldviews from these, you know, very different perspectives. And whenever you bring atonement up, (laughs) I feel like generally in our world, like there's almost a sense of like, that means something religious that should make you feel guilty. (laughs) 
<laughs> like it's somehow related to my guilt and me being a sinner. <laughs> and, uh, you know, cause you'll hear, you'll hear people who'd never go to church or maybe they they go to church once a year, maybe when they were a kid or something. Yeah. You know, I must atone for my sins. Yeah, you know that, what I mean? <laughs> that apprehension of the work I've got to do to get back to good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do I, how do I get back in your good graces? And I've done something bad. And so I have to atone or I have to make someone else atone for my sins, <laughs> sins and you know, atonement is simply the discovery and exploration of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's typically what it is. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? At some point in this conversation, I want to expand that question. I think it's a little bit bigger than that, but I think it's a good starting point. Uh, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? How did Jesus dying on the cross transform or save humanity? How did that reconcile humans to God? How did it reconcile humans to other humans? You know, something powerful happened there. What What was it? So what did Jesus accomplish? And I think that's a good starting place. Atonement, it's like this idea of at-one-ment. And I think Christians can forget that and theologians can forget that. They can get really lost in like the forensic details of their theological preference and they can almost treat it like this mechanism that God did and they get lost in the explanation, they get lost in the theological musings sometimes. The purpose of atonement is making us one with God. Like it's put us into a place of communion with God or makes that possible. Atonement isn't something that's just supposed to be a limitation or a have to. It's something that opens up possibility. Yeah. And so one of the things I think is important is atonement theory is a, it's a crucial part of our, of the Christian faith. I mean, cause it's about Jesus. What is Christianity if it's not about Jesus? Fair. In Christianity, it's atonement can either be seen as this mechanism that you gain forgiveness through or saving yourself. So sometimes like the theologizing about it can almost become a self-salvation project, like through your proper belief or understanding about the atonement, about God, that makes you right with God. For me, it more pushes me to see this grand vista of God's kingdom, the grand story of God's love in a broken world and how God's putting things right, how he began that project with Jesus the possibility of the, of this new kingdom life that's now offered through Jesus and the work of, of his life, death, resurrection. And it's a way for us to see how through Jesus, God has brought us back to our original purpose. Like, why are we here? I think it gets back to those fundamental human questions. Why are we here? Yeah. What's my purpose? What's this all about? That's why I think talking about atonement ultimately is really important because it's, it's helping us get back to like, what does it mean to be human? that we got it originally created us for and how can we get to that and really live life for God's glory and our neighbor's good. One of the things that struck me and all of what you're just saying, George, is uh, you're talking about like fundamentally it's asking the question, like what does it mean to be human? Would you say that like the exploration of the atonement could also explain Jesus's humanity, even though he's revealed as the son of God, it's the human form of God put on this earth. So if we're exploring humanity through the atonement, would that also explain the humanity of Jesus and his personification of, of God on earth? If you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. Jesus in the book of John is, you know, coming back to that concept. And John really wants to make that concept known. Like, if you want to know who God is, you look to Jesus. If you want to know the Father, you like know me, is really what Jesus said. And so Jesus arrives in this grand narrative, and it's so important to know. I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves because I think explaining like some of the different theories out there of what atonement is, I think is important. And we'll come back to this, this idea of being human, human vocation, what we're designed to do. We'll come back to that because it's what you're talking about, I think is extremely important. But for our listeners sake, I kind of want to maybe hit some of the basics first, but I, I will say that humans were designed in the image of God 
And when Paul talks about Jesus, he's always saying, like, we need to be conformed to his image. He talks about the image of Christ, and Jesus is the perfect representative of what an image bearer is supposed to be and look like. And oftentimes we reduce atonement to just forgiveness. Like, so if we're just forgiven, so all of a sudden we start treating Jesus like that mechanism to get the relief from guilt that we want. And so we end up consuming faith rather than participating with faith, like where there's interactive relationship. If Jesus is the image of what an image bearer should be, that has huge ramifications for what life with God can look like. And I think atonement is about life. It's about life with God. It's not just about forgiveness. It's not just about like those things that we want to get from God. Here's the thing. When you just try to get from God what you want, like you might even get it, you know, for a time. But usually we turn that into our idol, start worshiping or making that more important than it should be, or we're disappointed. I wanted this emotion. I wanted this miracle. I wanted this, but it doesn't shape our character. It doesn't change who we are. There's a momentariness to it. It's a temporary thing. But if we go after God and we go after, like you say, God, I just want to know what you want for me and what your plan is for humanity. It's like you get all those things that you originally wanted. That's all thrown in. And so when we submit ourselves to like learning the Jesus story, the God story, this big story that we get pulled into, and it's not about me, and it's about what God has done, and atonement, Christ, the story of God's work in the world, it's about life. It washes away this desire that humans have to like manage their sin, manage other people's sin, and maybe uh, be kind of like a little band-aid for things that we, that we need temporarily. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So Jesus Christ died for our sins. Now explain that. Ready, go. This is what like theologians have based their whole lives on. This is heavy stuff. And so we have to be careful that we don't build like this tribal group around like a theory of atonement that determines whether someone's in or they're out. I think that actually like undermines what Jesus actually was trying to do through atonement, which was reconcile people. Yeah, yeah. We start using it as like a boundary marker to say, hey, you're in the tribe with me because you believe this theory about atonement and you're out if you don't. And what that ultimately does is you've turned the gospel into a theory about atonement. You made a comment earlier about as Christians, like kind of consuming religion. And it made me think about that inclusivity that you mentioned, that the whole purpose of the blood of Christ, the atonement of Jesus, is to bring us into relationship with God. It's to have that community. And so I love that uh, as humans, we can get into this idea of the atonement happens, we're all able to be brought in, and then there's these different lenses that we can view atonement theory through, and we kind of do what we do as humans, where we create exclusivity within those things as opposed to continuing to create that inclusion. Is that kind of what you're mentioning? Yeah, in part. I think you you don't want to turn something Jesus never used to, like, say, this is my tribe and you're in, you're out. We have to be really careful to understand what was the story that the original authors wrote? Like, what is the Jesus story and how did Jesus frame and how did the original authors frame atonement? So often we want to put, like, uh, our tradition, our personal opinion— our favorite authors, our systematic theology above the narrative. And when you do that, there's this concept called Procrustes' bed. Great name, right? Procrustes. Yeah, I don't want to go anywhere near that guy's bed. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to go in Crusty's bed. <laughs> so Procrustes' bed is this innkeeper who, like, when people come to his inn, like, and they stay in one of the rooms, 
If they're too short for the bed he has, he stretches them to fit the bed. If they're too tall and their legs hang over, he cuts them off. And so it's this parable that really gets at what people do with theology. They do with like reality. If you have a certain systematic theology, it's so easy to put the scripture on Procrustes' bed and stretch it to my preferences, to my biases, my even my blind spots, or cut off and chop the legs out that don't fit our, our system. It's so easy. It's classic tribalism within Christianity and really any ideology or any philosophy. People can do this very easily. But the beautiful thing is that I think uh, as N.T. Wright, he says this, Jesus didn't give us a theory of atonement. He didn't give his disciples a theory about atonement. He gave them a meal. God doesn't just give us like this theory as much as the, the systematic theologians or I might want. You know, we all have like that tendency. We want it in the box. We want it the way we want it. We want to consume, right? Yeah. And God doesn't give us the system or the box or this theory. He gave us a person. He gave us Jesus and the story of Jesus. And he gave us a multi-chromatic approach to understanding the story with like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who all have different perspectives on the life of Jesus. And they bring their own life to it, their own perspective. And I just think that creates a complexity and a nuance that's important. It also prevents us from turning God into our own image, turning a theology or a concept into our own image. Jesus didn't give us a theory. He gave, a, he gave his disciples a meal. It's a practice a way to enter the Jesus story. I think it's an invitation. And getting back to what you're saying, we don't want to make tribal lines out of this stuff necessarily. There's some things that like our identity making for sure. But atonement's an invitation to oneness with Christ. Like there's something dynamic happening. So when we talk about it, like that's holy ground. I don't know, it causes some electricity in us. Like it's not just like an intellectual exercise. Think about it for like two millennia, this story has been changing people's lives. The atonement, the uh, Jesus story has gripped people's hearts and souls and imaginations. And it hasn't just been about theories and concepts and systems of theology. It's been transformed lives and different people relate to it differently. But Jesus is still there in the center. And I think that's what we need to get at. So I want to get into some of the models of atonement, some of the different perspectives on, on how people understand atonement. So as you approach a theological concept or looking at the scriptures, I just think it's important to ask some questions that I think serve as lenses. And sometimes we don't have any lenses on and that's why everything's blurry. We don't have the right lenses on or like we just don't even know that we have the lenses on in the first place. So here's here's some questions that we have to ask when we come to something like the atonement. The personal question, what has made sense to you about the cross? If you come from a Christian background, maybe you, you, you're not even a believer, but you you've got some experience with Christianity like what has informed you personally about how you understand Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, about the cross, about this word atonement? What's your personal experience with that? And then you kind of have to ask the question, well, why? What has informed your personal experience and interpretation of that? Some of it might be like you've had a personal experience and that has fundamentally impacted how you see the cross. Maybe that's how the Bible has been explained to you, which leads to the question of history and tradition. Like we all come from a tradition. I certainly came from a tradition that prioritized a, a certain atonement theory and way of looking at the cross. And so we have to ask that question. What is our history? What's our tradition? It's that cultural question. Like how does my culture help me see things? And then how does it blind me to certain things? I have blind spots. And my culture gives me ability to see things, and it also brings blind spots. Every culture does. 
We need to recognize that. So what is that? What might that be? And then I think this is really important, but what do the original authors have to say about the subject you're talking about? Don't just come to it with the the Procrustes bed thing, like you're going to chop it up or stretch it out. Like, let it speak. Let the story breathe for itself. The Bible was given to us through like these different authors. I think that's this multi-chromatic, multi-colored, multi-convictional palette that God gives us. Matthew's gospel, John's gospel, Luke's gospel, Paul's writings, Peter, the way they saw things, they were they were all so different from each other. If those guys were different and they, they define grace differently or they just, they define the problem of sin a little bit differently. I think God did that on purpose. I think different cultures might resonate more with like Matthew's way of describing the, the problems with sin in his narrative and the Jesus solution differently than maybe John does. And there's different cultures that might resonate with another author. John. He's like super mysterious. He's the Misto gospel writer. Mark is also kind of mysterious too and how he writes things. He's very like black and white in some ways, very like contrasting. Paul, if you're like the lawyer types that I know, love Paul. Like, cause you know, they're lawyers. They've got their favorite arguments that they think he makes, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and it's like, God gave us this family because he knew we have a family in our church homes that right. you might connect with God in a way that like one of these authors describes and it's like, that's it. That like, that makes sense to me. And the Bible, if if it's nothing, is this language act. It's the, this communication act of how God communicates love to us. I mean, that's the whole idea of why Jesus had to come. That's why the atonement is important. An expansive view of the atonement is important because it's all about God reaching down to earth and communicating his love in a transformative way. So... Let's get to the theories. I'm going to touch on these briefly. I want to encourage anybody listening. We'd love to have your questions for any clarifications for another podcast or something. But I'm just going to give like an overview because I think that's most helpful for the purpose of this conversation about atonement. So the first model I want to talk about, just to give you a picture of, is you know what I've known as the Christus exemplar or the moral influence theory. This is a, a way of looking at Jesus and the atonement like in the sense of moral influence, that we as humans don't have a good model of what it looks like to be a human. Like we don't know what the purpose of being a human is or the practices and how to love each other and how to do things the right way. And we're mimetic. Mimetic means we learn by by imitation, by example, by model. And we need Jesus as this model for us. You know, like you see this in a lot of this mimetic way of understanding this example or moral influence in like Catholic church when they talk about the saints. These are models of moral influence, and they are relating them ultimately to how they are a reflection of Christ. And so that's really important for some traditions. And they will approach looking at the cross and what Jesus did. He's an example. Like, look at how he lived, how he died, and then how God vindicated him. His teaching, his deeds, all of this is so we can learn to walk like him. That's kind of what it's about. Christ came into the world as a moral influence. And, you know, I think that's true. I know there's probably some variations on that, but in general, that's how I would describe it. So the strength is like you're creating a clear picture for people to chase after. I think that's important. We do that at Whitewater. We're Jesus-centered. Yeah. You know, we're, we're touching on like, hey, he's the method and the model. He's the center. Like, that's what we want to look like. One of the weaknesses that people have pointed out, if you don't have a well-rounded understanding, and I don't want to just give a caricature of all these, you know, I'm sure that we want to take the best versions of all this stuff. Absolutely. You know, some of the maybe the weaknesses or challenges of this view would be how does it deal with sin nature? Like there's a brokenness deep inside. Like how does it deal with that? How does it deal with in the narrative of scripture, Satan is a moral influence kind of like just get rid of the reality and work of Satan in the world. 
How does it deal with putting right all that's been wrong in the past? We can move forward from here, but what about all the injustice that's been stored up and also the cosmic reality, like there's structures and systems. You know, some people might criticize, how does this deal with the cosmic? Satan needs to be defeated. (laughs) We can't do that. Even if I lived a 90% of what Jesus lived, say you could live a 90% of what he did and you were like really, really close to perfect. None of that could be a drop in a bucket to get rid of the cosmic forces of darkness. Yeah. So that would be a critique or a challenge to that. The next theory I would just mention is commonly known as ransom theory. This is a theory picked up on by like C.S. Lewis, like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan, he trades himself. And the ransom theory is like, there's this oh, trade okay. between Aslan and yeah. the White Witch. And, you know, she's got control. She's got Edmund captive because she deceived him. He believed her deception. He's now like enslaved. Yeah. So that sin nature is, is holding us hostage asking for the ransom. Satan is. We were ensnared by our sin nature, but like the lie is the thing that did it. A lot of Orthodox really lean into that deceptive nature of Satan is the origin of the problem of sin. Yeah. So they're trying to get at that deception part. So like the model goes, Jesus is given on our behalf to pay the price for our freedom Mm -hmm. from the devil, from Satan, from evil. And the strength of this is like liberty and freedom have always been from like beginning to end the narrative of scripture, a huge theme. I don't know that you could walk into a church and be there very long without hearing the themes of freedom and and liberty. But some of the um, challenges that people might have with it on its own or at a not full orbed understanding of it is it kind of puts Satan in the driver's seat. It gives Satan and evil like this authority, like some people's perspective, you're making God subservient to Satan in a sense. Yeah. You've got this idea of, well, America doesn't, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And then this would probably assume that God kind of bends and chooses to give in. I can see how that can be an issue. <laughs> yeah. It raises the question, like, who's in charge here? And yeah. does God have to play games with Satan to like free us? Mm. Or he can just go bust his chops, you know? Like, yeah. that would be that. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, Revelations. He's, he's going to bust his chops eventually, but. <laughs> You're jumping way ahead in the story, yeah, man. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Uh. So that would be like a, a challenge to that perspective. Again, this is, you know, I'm, I'm really simplifying some of these yeah, things. Of and course, yeah. I know that there's nuanced ways of understanding that, that answer some of those questions, but that by and large, that might be it. See, this is exactly what I was talking about. You know, when someone asked me about atonement theory, I was just like, oh, yeah, well, it's kind of this, uh, well, it's, let's Google it because, I, you know, I wasn't 100% sure. And then I found five to seven different descriptions of what atonement theory was and what it entails. And I just didn't have the verbiage for way to describe this. And this is perfect. Go ahead and keep going, George. Next model or theory I want to talk about on atonement is what's known as Christus Victor. This can be connected to ransom theory in some ways, but I would put this in kind of its own category. So this is all about Jesus gaining victory over the powers of sin, Satan, and death, and often seen as like that he subverts them through love. Different traditions might acknowledge Jesus becomes king. You know, Jesus wins. You you mentioned Revelation a little bit ago, right? Like Jesus wins. So like he's the king and he conquers sin, Satan, and death and offers us life. And, And so he has this cosmic victory over principalities, over like the thing that's pulling the strings, like these dark forces pulling the strings behind humanity and behind injustice and immorality and idolatry. And he has victory over it. But some people, they really emphasize that he did that by subverting all those things through love. Instead of defeating personal and cultural idols or demonic power by recycling evil or mirroring evil or using evil methods and the tools of violence, coercion, deception, and ugliness, 
Jesus defeated evil and all these powers, not with the tools that they used, but with goodness, love, the tools of righteousness, and ultimately self-giving love. Like he gave himself up. Like Aslan, in a sense, gave himself up on the stone table. He didn't do anything to the witch. She actually destroyed herself. Yeah. And so evil is turned in on itself. And so you'll see some of the creative themes that you're seeing out of that, or maybe themes that are being grabbed on again in a modern time. You're seeing like people look at ways of, of being in the world more creatively and more loving, not emphasizing with all the tools of coercion and violence and hatred racism, genocides that have occurred, or the types of manipulation you'll see in politics over the last 100, 200 years, people are saying, hey, those are not the tools of the kingdom of God. We're not going to use those. Jesus didn't use those tools. He went to the cross, submitted himself to it, but he never hated his enemy back. He never went punch for punch, you know, tooth for tooth. He said, love your enemies, bless them, pray for them. So you're seeing creativity in areas of nonviolent theology or creative participation, like finding ways to participate in the world, but doing it not with the tools of this world. And I think there's some really cool creative things happening there. Not to say how you you should theologically think about this. I'm just describing what I'm seeing, and it's cool. You see leaders like N.T. Wright picking up on this theme. Like His thinking on this has shifted a little bit. It's like grown from where he was years ago. Like He's embracing more of a of a Christus Victor model. Mm -hmm. Greg Boyd is all Christus Victor. You know, he makes some arguments around nonviolent theology around this. N.T. Wright doesn't push as strong on like nonviolence. It has to be your core central theme. Yeah. But they're both using the Christus Victor model. You'll see Anabaptists that are now using more of that as a model, or maybe people are just becoming more aware of it. Maybe it's always been there. I just am seeing that. And I think that's creative and cool. And this isn't a new theory to clarify. Um, I actually thought of it just a few weeks ago. So no, nice. Yeah, yeah it's been, people, you know, people would like to think that, but um, this stuff goes back. You, know, you see these themes in the scriptures. I mean, this yeah. is, you know, Paul saw this, John saw this, early church mothers and fathers, for sure. This would lead me to like the last main model I want to share. This is known as satisfaction theory or penal substitutionary atonement. And I would actually say that penal substitutionary atonement fits within satisfaction theory. It, it's like a genre within it. And uh, that means punishment, like it's punishment oriented, like someone needs to be punished, as we'll kind of describe the model. And Jesus is the substitute, like he substitutes himself for you and me. So this is really about strong emphasis on substitution. Now, not all Christians that fall in this camp would put an emphasis on punishment or penal substitutionary atonement. But this idea of substitution is really important. You actually see it in most of the other models. It's there, even if it's like in the shadows or maybe it's still central. Christus Victor, like Jesus in our place, absorbs all this stuff and becomes king. It's the means that he becomes king and victor over sin, Satan, and death. So like substitutionary themes are woven through this. But I just want to be clear, like not all people like focus on the punishment or wrath in the same way, or they would define the wrath and punishment in different ways. So the basic concept behind this is this idea that there's this law court. Humans, we have sinned. There's this debt of sin against us. Since we did wrong, it needs to be set right. The strength of this is there's a sense of justice. And Jesus is given by God the Father in our place to die for our sins. So the punishment that we deserve, the wrath that we deserve from God, is taken by Jesus. Penal substitutionary atonement focuses on the punishment side that, that God is, he's got wrath at this injustice. And because this injustice needs to be made right, someone has to take the wrath and the punishment for it. A more plain substitutionary atonement, like Scott McKnight mentions, 
for him, he thinks it's important to distinguish between like wrath and death. So there's a substitution of the death that we all have, which, you know, like biblically speaking, wrath often is defined differently than we would define wrath. Like it's, most people think of it as like uncontrolled rage. Other people, biblical authors or biblical theologians would argue like it's, it's God turning you over to the things that you want that lead to death. So how are you defining that? You see that there's a major difference, like God's letting out his uncontrollable rage at you so he can forgive somebody. You can see the critique there would be like, wow, so God has to like have his wrath appeased through beating on someone or someone's blood so he can forgive versus like there's this natural recourse of our sin that Jesus absorbs in our place. And there's more variations on that. There's actually extremely nuanced. And I think it's important to recognize because I grew up in the background where it was this version of substitution was the gospel. Like, that's what I remember. I know there's theologians I know they're like, well, that's too simple. I know William Lane Craig, along with John Stott, they kind of would hold this view as very central. And I've heard William Lane Craig say, you know, like, that's not what penal substitutionary atonement is. It's, you know, this bloodthirsty God who has to be appeased by the bleeding out and dying of his son and taking out his full rage on him. He's like, it's more nuanced and there's a better description that gets at justice, which, you know, he's right. Like when you look at the old theologians, but what ends up bleeding down, what I've experienced and what I've seen many Christians believe and equate to the gospel is PSA, penal substitutionary atonement, equals the gospel. And if you believe that, that you're saved. If you don't believe that, you're not. And there's also like this incongruence that I think people have seen. And um, I've just seen a lot of people walk away because they, they see the incongruence of saying that like, this is what God is like and he's love and atonement's this huge, powerful thing. But like in order for you to be forgiven, God has to cosmically abuse his son. It's kind of what the argument would be against that. I think the strength of this view is it focuses on setting things right where it's things have been wrong. There's a sense of justice that's there. Substitution is definitely like Christ took our sin. He took our place. And you see that in ransom theory and in Christus victory. Like it's there. And Christ did take and absorb death and wrath, depending on how you define that. I don't want to get too in the weeds, but I'll just say that some of the weaknesses, it's become oversimplified and it's become a dominant story that can paint God as this bloodthirsty, unforgiving, violent villain who has to dole out punishment on his son so that we can have forgiveness. It can also be kind of warped picture of God that is incongruent with his character. The question would come up is, why does God the Father require sacrifice as a condition for forgiveness when Jesus teaches us to forgive without sacrifice? Basic teaching of Jesus is love your enemies. Don't strike back. Don't go tooth for tooth, eye for eye. So why is it that for God to forgive people, his wrath has to be appeased violently? But God teaches us through Jesus that we're to forgive people nonviolently with no retribution and without appeasing our wrath. So you can see some incongruence there and frustration. And I think there's disappointment. If you think that you have to believe that theory about the atonement to be saved, Mm. that becomes a major roadblock. Yeah. Whereas if like you've been struggling with being captive to something, which atonement theory is going to speak to you? If you're not feeling like a weight of guilt, but you're feeling the weight of like captivity, Christus Victor, maybe ransom, like something along those lines are going to speak probably more to your heart. But if you've been told, no, 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 you have to feel really, really, really guilty and then realize that Jesus took all that onto himself, that wrath of the Father, and that's the thing that saves you. Mm. You can walk away really disillusioned, or like it just kind of shrinks the gospel yeah. to this theory. And God didn't give us a theory, he gave us his son. We don't know exactly 
theories are our best guesses, but the atonement, there's a mystery to it. I think we have to keep a bit of mystery and realize that this is big and all these things need to hold together in some way, shape, or form. Jesus said, if you want to know what God looks like, you look at me. It's self-giving love and it's expressed in loving our enemies the way Jesus did. Scott McKnight and N.T. Wright push for a little bit more nuanced perspective on, some might call it more balanced, understanding of substitution or satisfaction theory that emphasizes Jesus substituting himself for our sorrowful death or turning God turning us over to the results of our, of our sin and our idolatry, because that often gets left out. And instead of focusing on this like angry, out of control wrath caricature, now I know that's not what people mean when they teach it, but sometimes that's kind of what it's taken. I think it's important. Here's a a strength for this theory is forgiveness. Like it is dealing with the, our need for forgiveness and our guilt. But the problem is, I think N.T. Wright, and there's a few other theologians that I would totally agree with, is forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean freedom. You can be enslaved to something like money, and that's you're enslaved to that. Let's say you're enslaved to addiction or like sexual addiction. You're enslaved to something. If all you have is like a mechanism for forgiveness, you're going to continually come back to Jesus, to the atonement, asking for forgiveness, 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 without ever fundamentally dealing with the idol mm. and finding freedom from that, finding the, the victor that helps you actually be freed from your captivity. That's why I've, I've appreciated theologians who have looked at the whole story and they see all of these themes and a few more, like many more actually, they see all these themes within the story and they take the narrative and they let the narrative kind of define itself and they, they don't just try to squish it all together. They don't stretch it. They don't cut it. They don't squish it. They take it for what it is and there's nuance to it. And I think it's really powerful to remember that we need freedom as much as we need forgiveness. We also need healing. And there's other theories that emphasize more of the healing nature of God in the atonement. So there's these different facets that I think are just really, really important that helps stretch us in our understanding of who God is. In summary, to put it broadly, ransom theory centers on Satan as like a primary player and focuses on our freedom from that. PSA centers on God the Father as like the primary player and it focuses on justice and forgiveness. Moral influence theory centers on, on man, like learning and modeling ourselves after Christ, a new way to be human. And Christus Victor centers on Christ, the one who frees us from Satan, sin, and death, frees us from that, and he also frees us for our vocation and living out the kingdom, a life with God. I know we've hung out on this for a little while, but we're doing a podcast. Yeah, and that's, it's okay. It's what this episode's about. Penal Substitutionary Atonement, or PSA, needs kind of a slash in there because it's, it's about the substitute. It's about Christ also representing us. So he's a substitute. He's a representative for who humans should be and what we should be. He's perfect. He's good. He's what the purpose of being a human is all about. And we fall short of that because of our sin and our idolatry, our enslavement. And so it's important to know that you don't have to um, subscribe to the same, you know, punishment oriented or definition that another Christian does. And some people who are, think that you do are probably really mad at me right now. Like, no, you do. You have yeah. to understand it the way I understand it to be a Christian. And I just, I have to say like Christian history and culture throughout history, that's just not true. You know, it took years for some of the authors to even probably understand what the Trinity is. There's mystery behind some of this stuff. I love Dallas Willard really puts the emphasis like God has done something for us that is so complex and beautiful and mysterious. We have to remember like, what is atonement for? At one mint, it's for communion with God. 
So if anything, even if there's someone like you just don't get atonement, like doesn't make sense to you, that's not going to get you left out. All of a sudden you're, God's not going to care about you and you don't get in because you didn't, you didn't understand atonement the proper way. Trusting Jesus is enough and living a life in the kingdom is what it's about because atonement's about life. It's about being human. Would you say that if you do, I guess it would seem that like if you do accept Christ as your savior or you end up believing, you have some sort of atonement theory, whether or not you have a name for it, that's just part of being someone who does believe. Yeah. I mean, at some point we all have a atonement theory, no matter how primitive, and we also have atonement questions. <laughs> right. Like you can be the smartest theologian in the world and you should have questions about this mysterious, beautiful thing. Yeah. I'd be concerned if you don't. We got to be humble here. We're just humans. It's also a really good call out, Tobin. Just the fact that this is one of those things that whether you can name it or not, you probably have a version of atonement theory. And as you've listened to this episode, you've probably found that there is one that you do align with much more than the others. Or you may align with different things from several of them, which isn't an unhealthy perspective as we've kind of learned as well. Again, if you, if you're just, I, that's why I just think it's so important to get into the narrative. Like the atonement pushes you into the narrative. It shouldn't just be pushing you into like a systematic theological idea. It yeah. needs to push you into a relationship with God, living a life with Jesus and knowing the story. And here's the thing. If, I mean, kids who have grown up with the story, like probably we have, yeah, you're going to hear some of these theories and be like, oh yeah, like that part of the story has always resonated with me. I might describe it this way, but that that's language on something I've always felt, mm-hmm. you know, because that's what stories do. They like, they get like in our bones, you know? Yeah. So here's some of the biggest issues I see with PSA and that I might even have personally. I won't tell you whether, which one, <laughs> but here's some of the biggest issues. With, Two tooths and a lie. Got it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> here's some, some of the biggest issues with PSA. Um, and I might even challenge some of these issues, but here they are. Conflating this atonement theory with the gospel, mistakenly believing that you have to believe this to be saved and to be in the, the right tribe. The Bible has never lays out. Paul never says the gospel is penal substitutionary atonement for salvation. He says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to anyone who comes in. So as much as we might want our favorite atonement theory, and I know I'm picking a little bit on PSA folks, and I come from that background, so this is a bit of a critique on myself. And I think you could say this about any theory when it's taken out of context or idolized too much, that we need to be able to self-critique. Bible never says our theory is the thing that saves people. It's God's power that saves people. And so I think a good question to ask to help us understand this is, is it possible to agree and promote a certain atonement theory, but not know God. Hmm. Is that possible? Unfortunately, I think that might be possible to know a lot about something and to promote something, but not know God. Yeah. James talks about that, you know, like even the demons yeah. agree and believe in the graces of God and they shudder. Doesn't mean they, they're on Jesus' team. So like it's possible to advocate something or to believe that you can leverage an idea, a concept into your salvation. But that's idolatry and that's self-salvation. You are earning your salvation just as much as the person you might condemn who's like the social justice warrior that irritates you because they do all these like things out in the world and they're just earning their salvation. They're just doing all these works. And you don't even realize that your way of approaching theology is earning your own salvation 
by what you agree with. But that's the difference. Like God doesn't ask us to like agree with creeds about him. God asks us to love him. Jesus said the greatest commandment is love God mm. and love other people. Not to agree with ideas about him. Number two, it's really easy to push this theory as the dominant theory over all others. This happens with all these theories. We all have our favorites. It's so easy to push it. It's lacking a humility. And there's some beauty in this perspective. There really is. But we don't want to push our theory over everybody else's. We want to learn. Number three, for God to forgive people, his wrath has to be appeased violently. But God teaches us through Jesus that we have to forgive people nonviolently, not with retribution, and not to appease our own wrath. So that inconsistency can be seen there in this version, potentially. And Jesus said, if you want to know God, you look at me. And if you want to walk in the way of the kingdom, you listen to my teaching. And this is what Jesus taught. So it seems incongruous. It seems like there's dissonance in that picture. We have to learn to forgive our enemies. And does that require like a scapegoat? Does it require us to like take that out the way God does? Or is that just a unique moment in history? Number four, individualistic and consumeristic. It's so easy to turn this into what Dallas Willard calls the gospel of sin management. Jesus, give me a little bit of your blood for forgiveness. And so it's alleviation of guilt, and it doesn't lead to Christ-like or character change. This is a way of alleviating your guilt, but not becoming a more godly person. That's what Dallas Willard called Christian consumers. You just want God to consume him. Like Christian vampires, we just want a little bit of his blood when we feel like we need it. Number five, wrath, punishment, violence can become accepted as healthy forms of discipleship. You know, I can understand that. I think probably people have experienced that. But I would actually say almost any one of these theories, you know, Ransom Theory, Christus Victor, have elements of violence in them. And if you turn into an idol or blow out of proportion any one of these, I think that wrath, punishment, violence, abuse can become mingled in with it. So I think it's a fair criticism for any idolization of any one of these theories. It's easy to say, yeah, PSA, like, look at this. God's beating up on his son. He's this bully in the sky. I get that. But Christus Victor is like the, this victorious warrior God. That could happen with that too. I just think we have to be wise about understanding that can happen to any of us in our views and guard against some of that. It's interesting to me, like some of the greatest advocates of this theory that I respect, like William Lane Craig, John Stott. John Stott moved from pacifism into like more of creative participation and stewardship approach. John like did incredible work theologically to like merge personal transformation through the gospel and social transformation. We have to be charitable and, and, uh, and recognize there's some wonderful people that have been transformed in their understanding of God in incredible ways with these views. And so now that we kind of have some verbiage around this, we understand what the different camps are, that there are benefits, there are detractors to each one of them. What kind of questions are important for us as Christians to ask about what we believe in atonement theory, why we should care about certain perspectives, and how, it, how it's going to affect our day-to-day as Christians? I think the practical question you're asking is so important. What does this matter? What does it mean to me? And how does this impact people? Is this making me more like Jesus? Or less like Jesus. Yeah. And if like if Jesus doesn't give us the example, right? Like you were talking about, there are examples of a lot of this in the Bible. But if Jesus doesn't give the disciples an atonement theory, he gives us the meal like you're talking about. Why should we look at these things and think to ourselves like, well, why should I care? Especially if I'm not given a specific one by Christ, how do these practically come into play? I think that when we approach this, it should make us more charitable. 
it should drive us back to the narrative, not more into our own world or into our own tribe. It actually should draw us together. Like there's some other atonement theories I've just been really fascinated by. There's, you know, a new one, newer one, you know, scapegoat theory by Rene Girard. And without going into the details of it, it really is helping people learn that humanity likes to scapegoat people. And Jesus shows that and he reveals the idols by being scapegoated. How do we not do that? Yeah. How do we not do that? In the Jesus story, there's a whole crowd of people that were following Jesus, right? They were watching his miracles. They were interested in what he was doing. They were even considering that, like they were praising him as he came in to Jerusalem toward the end of his ministry. And those same crowds, what are they yelling when he's on trial in a totally like unjust, falsified kangaroo court? They're yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, right? Yeah. How sad is it that historically, and maybe even today, when people are talking about the atonement, which includes the crucifixion and the cross, people might just end up yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Not about Jesus, but about the person they don't like yeah. or they don't agree with. So what does it say about your system of belief if when someone disagrees with it, challenges it, makes you mad, doesn't fall within the parameters you think are right? And you act like someone in the crowd who crucified Jesus. You know that you're not acting like Jesus, and you know that there's something broken fundamentally about the perspective you're coming from, about why it's so important to you. Atonement theory, I think, when we look at Jesus, it holds a mirror up to us and helps us see who we really are. Taking the best of all of these, are we living a life in a way that loves and serves other people like Jesus, Mm. enters their world, is willing to serve and lift them up and willing to even sometimes be broken like Jesus was on the cross, like be you know made fun of or put down because we love people. Are we willing to do that? Does our perspective drive us toward that? If you're like the ransom theory, like are you serving people and sacrificing for them? Yeah. Christus Victor, are you like challenging unjust systems? Do you believe that there's such thing as like systems of injustice, like the system that crucified Jesus? Like it just boggles my mind that people can be like, There's no such thing as like institutional racism. Like, really? Really? Like, tell that to the, uh, you know, Moses and the Hebrews that he was trying to free from Egypt. That was systemic. What was the the system of justice that Jesus was in with the Roman government and the, the Sanhedrin at the time? Systemic injustice and idolatry. We're fooling ourselves if we have such strong beliefs that blind us to the truth, that blind us to reality. I mean... You have it with uh, systems of money. Like, can money be turned into an idolatrous system? Look at Wall Street. Can sexual addiction become systemic? Look at the pornography industry. So if if people are like, well, there's no way that sin can be institutional or systematic idolatry of racial bias, that usually, to me, would mean that you've just named your idolatry. Mm. The sin that you can't see is like, that's the idol that's blinded you. Driving us to the scriptures should humble us and help us learn. And we should be asking them, like, am I look, looking like the best version of this thing? For substitutionary atonement, am I like putting things right? Am I willing to step into someone else's place? You know, am I willing to do that? Does my life take on any of those habits, those practices? Am I seeing freedom in my life? Am I helping freedom in others? Am I forgiving other people? Am I experiencing forgiveness? Doesn't get more important than that. Doesn't get more basic than that. Like, you never, as a Christian, just get to say like, oh, I get to practice theological conversations like this and think that I'm like somehow mature or that my knowledge or my ability to be curious about this stuff means I'm mature equals maturity. It doesn't. Yeah. Some of the most immature 
people in the world who have done some of the most heinous, horrible things, hypocritical things, have been people that could articulate their sin. Maturity is practicing these things. Maturity is love. It's doing this. Bob Goff, he said it, love does. And so when we're coming to atonement, we're coming to Jesus, are we embodying this stuff? I think it's a good question to ask when you're talking with someone or you're looking at yourself, you know, is this theory, is this theology, is this atonement theory or whatever it is, fill in the blank, is this theology building up and propping up my idol and my bias? Or is it me like submitting myself to learning and growing and allowing Jesus to change me? And if we don't get to that, we actually end up fortifying the walls of like our own idolatrous system. We fortify the walls of our own pride. And that damages us. It damages people. And I think that's why, you know, I think that's why Jesus talked in parables. He's always on the path and he's always telling a parable, right? He's on the yep. journey. He's entering people's worlds. He's using their language. You know, he, he didn't use like the terminology we're using Christus Victor. You know, do you think Jesus would use that? <laughs> no. He goes, let me tell you the story about Christus Victor or penal substitutionary atonement. You know, like, no. I mean, he was like, there was a seed fell into a field. Yeah. Or like there was once a farmer. He had this this field or like there's a father with two sons and he could just get at the human level. I think theology has its place, but I think it's just so important to come back to, you know, Jesus, he was so like, he's able to bring it to the human level and speak in a language and an imagery that actually transforms us because that's the point is, is, is the point of these kinds of conversations to be right or is it to be transformed? It seems like, you know, we have these different theories that are all pointing to the same things, just like we have four different Gospels that are all pointing to the same thing, that idea of being able to tell a story that resonates with different people, because, you know, not every story is for every person. Different ways that people approach looking at atonement or looking at these types of theories, you know, there's people who will say, like, there's my theory and that's it, you know, like my way or the highway, right? Yeah. There's people that are like, they see kind of a kaleidoscope. I think it's Scott McKnight. He calls like the atonement theories are like golf clubs in a golf bag. Like every theory has a, has its place and like at a distance that you got to use. And someone who's like, you know, PSA might be like, yeah, but the putter is mine. You know, his point is like, there's a place to use these theories, metaphors, pictures to help people move forward. And and there's truth in all of them to help us understand, but we don't want to rip them out of the content. You don't want to like rip the kernel out of its shell. And when Jesus would tell stories, like that was a, there's a kernel of truth in this shell. The story's the shell, and then there'd be like these nugget. There's this thing that we take away. So we don't want to take things out of the context of the story. Always bring it back to the story. And to write the mental model I get from a guy like him is Christus Victor is kind of like the trunk of the tree. And then the other theories are kind of like the branches. So they're connected, but the trunk for him is like that Christus Victor or something similar to a Christus Victor because, you know, there's, there's nuance there. Gary Brashears, you know, he talks about it, the atonement theory as like a multifaceted jewel. It has these facets and it's like you look at the different, the beauty of it. So a tree is like, there's like this organic nature. It's kind of saying the same thing or like the golf bag. There's multiple versions that go together and they complement each other. There, there's some distance, but there's complementarity. One's more organic, one's more functional, the other one's more beauty oriented. Yeah. So you even seeing like the metaphors that are used, like you emphasize different things, beauty, functionality, organic growth, right? Yeah. These are languages to reach people. Uh, a guy named John Bowen really talks about this. And he's like, he even says, like in the book of Luke, when you hear the prodigal son, 
told and the son runs off and there's this, he sins and he embarrasses the father and he comes back and he's accepted. That's an image of God and like Israel, God in us. And humanity's like that, right? Where's the atonement? He and others have suggested that like in that story, the metaphor of atonement that is kind of hidden there for them is a relational atonement that the father absorbs the pain and sorrow and embarrassment and personally absorbs that. So like the father absorbs the pain in that theory. And it's just so, it's so interesting. And I I think that all these things can really help us. So if I were to play my cards, I would be pretty similar to like a Dallas Willard in N.T. Wright. My background's kind of semiotics and narrative theology and narrative interpretation. So rather than just like parsing Greek words, you actually like, what is the story saying here? What are the stories that give the context to it? which has kind of helped and informed me. And it makes me appreciate nuance and care about some details that other people don't. It's harder to be simplistic and be like, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And you're, you know, you are stupid and I'm smart. You kind of have like see a broader picture and be like, oh, wow, there's complexity here. But narrative is really important. So for me, I, I would agree with, with Dallas and with NT on, on this, like that the, the narrative incorporates the key theories within them. Karl Barth, amazing theologian that created a whole genre of theologians, basically, he articulates the atonement within the narrative of Jesus. Dallas Willard also does that and would say, hey, atonement is not just the cross. It's not just justification. We've missed it if that's what we think. Atonement is bigger. It's like life. It's the, the incarnation is what the atonement's about. It's Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So we, we actually pull the frame out and say, like, Jesus' life, the way he lived, the way he came into life— and the way he taught and the deeds that he did, and then the things that led to his death, his death and resurrection inform when life with God in communion with God at one minute is, and it gives a meaning to his death on the cross. And what was started in Genesis, you know, is this new project is launched to restore what was broken in Jesus, and then it's brought to total culmination, you know, at the end times that you mentioned in Revelation, right? So there's a larger arc, the story, it's really incredible. And what I appreciate about NT that I also, I mean, when you, even when you, I think this is really a, a major thing that's missed in Romans and atonement theory is that atonement can't just address like our guilt. It can't only just address the need for moral change. One of the big facets that gets missed is what's the human vocation? And Tobin, you had asked this early on in our conversation, what were humans designed for? Why did they fall? Well, they listened to Satan. When they listened to the wrong voice, they had the wrong vision for life, and that wrong vision led to the wrong vocation. Mm. Good voice, the true voice of God said, hey, don't eat of this. You can have everything else. Don't eat of this. The voice of deception made that, it says in the Genesis, the fruit looked good to them. Yeah. So when the wrong, they listen to the wrong voice, they have the wrong vision, and that leads to the wrong vocation. Like They move away from stewarding the earth and exploiting the earth, stewarding their relationships together to exploiting each other. And you see that unraveling in the, the Genesis story. So important. And so like in Romans where it talks about like they neither glorified God nor were grateful to him, that's saying there's a worship problem. There's a stewardship problem. And our vocation as humans is to be stewards and worshipers. And the atonement if we don't understand that that's human vocation is to be stewards of God's planet, to be image bearers of God, that we reflect God's love to the world and the world's love back to him. If we don't get that. We're just going to make it about like us. 
<laughs> like like not about like that doesn't seem like it misses the point at all the yeah. purpose of being human which is not about us and it's to love the world which then is all about us in one sense like we have to take responsibility but it's not about us and this paradox exists yeah where we can learn to be human where we reflect god's love in the way that we're supposed to walking with god and i think oh that's if we miss that we're missing some big things about the atonement yeah mm. The less of our human nature we exhibit, the more human we become almost. Yeah. The the less of our inhuman nature we share, the more human we become. The less of the anti-creation story starting in Genesis 3. It doesn't start in 1 and 2. That starts, everything's good. God created things good in the beginning and then like sin comes in and this anti-creation begins pulling and unraveling everything. But the story is this God of creation is doing a new creation in the midst of this of these anti-creation forces satan comes in wrong voice gives them wrong vision wrong vocation that's how i simplify it so humans when they listen to the wrong voice turn the created world into an idol and themselves into an idol they stop worshiping god which is what romans 1 says and they worship created things and sin is the result of idolatry it's the result of making ourselves gods and worshiping other gods before god and then this new creation, God sends this, his new creation son to be the first seed of the new creation, of the new humans. Show us what it's like to be human. And Jesus breaks open this doom and gloom and broken anti-creative forces of Satan. And he sets all these humans through the atonement. Like when we are freed and forgiven, we're freed and forgiven, not just from these anti-creation forces and sin. We're freed for new creation stewardship, image of God, image bearing, rather than like creating systems of injustice and idolatry, we're freeing people from those things. And we're being freed at the same time. That's a beautiful picture of what the atonement is really about and frees us for. And if we don't get that, it's just like, oh, when I feel bad, I go to church and I think about like what Jesus did for me and I get rid of my guilt and then I go back to my addiction. Yeah. Oh, we're missing it. Or we just go back to kind of thinking like, that's what religion, that's what Jesus came to do. It's, that's part of it. Like, I don't want to, forgiveness is big. Being freed from guilt is huge. I don't want to minimize that. But we need to have a more expansive view of the kingdom. We get everything else thrown in. If you go after the kingdom, you get forgiveness and everything else thrown in. Yeah. If you go after just forgiveness, you might miss like the kingdom things, life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm getting this mental image of religion as a vending machine right? Like, oh, I'm not doing good. I'm in a weird space. So I'll go to church. I punch in the code for church. I get out what I, what I want from the religion, you know, like, oh, I sin. Oh, I need the blood. I punch in the vending machine code, but you miss out on the meal. Like you were talking about earlier. And that's what Jesus comes to do. He comes to give us that communion, that interaction with him. When you share a meal with somebody, it's a lot different than when you grab something from a vending machine on your way. Definitely notice the similarities from a conversation that we had before about uh the paradoxical nature of you talked about the the leadership paradox mm-hmm. like how the atonement and looking at jesus's overall being here as not about us and about us and like how that's reflected in marriage as well as like just leadership in general the more personally true something is i think the more universally true it is mm-hmm. thinking the power of that so if we're a reflection of this loving God and this creative like force that is God, Father, Son, and Spirit that created the world we live in to be in relationship with us, to give us a job to do in this world, then of course our marriages are a reflection of that. And so like this, tr- these 
paradoxes, these mysteries within the faith that like we can either like try to pick apart and be scientific about empirically like, well, which is it? And not be able to like hold tension and hold paradox in our hands and just say, wow, wow, this is true. Not with this or this, but wow, this is true. It's not about me and it's all about me are true at the same time. It's about we and it's about me. It's about grace and truth. I mean, you can just go down the paradoxes of our faith. The Orthodox Church has really done a good job. Like They they emphasize mystery and paradox. They embrace it. Mm. When they talk about atonement, their focus is on resurrection. Where the West is focused on the cross, they have focused primarily on resurrection. I just think think that's kind of cool like that. There's something to be learned there, right? Dallas Willard says this about atonement, and I think this is cool. He says, a good way of putting this is to say that atonement is basically incarnation. Incarnation is Christ coming into flesh to allow us to identify with him in his life and ministry and on the cross and in life beyond the cross. I think that nails it. We have sort of a Trinitarian God, relational God, one and three, three and one, Father, Son, Spirit. We have Jesus given as the incarnation, God in the flesh given to us. We're given this story. We're given the spirit. The atonement has to be at the very least within that context. And I think that helps us hold all of those other theories and put them in their proper place, self-correct them, like their self-correcting nature of a, of a narrative. And then also challenge me, like it challenges me, like, no, this, this theory can't mean this. God doesn't look at justice this way. Well, maybe, maybe there's some things I haven't considered. Man, I think when we can learn and, and approach it this way, there's a, a deep, ancient well that we can draw from that can really change our life. And I cannot stress when we're talking about atonement, just like, like I was listening to this interview. It was like a kind of a debate between William Lane Craig and Greg Boyd about atonement. You know, Greg's coming from his pacifist Mm -hmm. Christus Victor model and William Lane Craig coming from the PSA penal substitutionary atonement. And really they're coming at William Lane Craig. If you guys don't know, he's a really great apologist known as a great apologist, world renowned. And Greg, man, he's, he's no slouch. He's really good at apologetics himself. And I think he's really good at coming from different paradigms that can challenge people. So it was really interesting. But there was this point in the conversation where Greg's basically saying like, well, why does God have to mete out like this wrathful punishment? Like, why is that necessary forgiveness? Like, why can't God just forgive? And William Craig, you know, he's like the lawyer type of thinker. And he's like, because there's the weight of sin. And there's this. So they're coming from these totally different perspectives. One's a relational theology that's like, I don't have to beat on my one son to forgive my other son. Mm -hmm. And the other guy's like... In a court of law, like (laughs) you do, (laughs) there's a weight and a penalty that has to be absorbed. It's going somewhere. And William Lane Craig, for some people, might have seemed like he kind of won the argument or like, if you came from Greg's perspective, you were like, yeah, he won. If you came from Craig's perspective, he was like, yeah, he won. But he, he appealed to tradition and history. He said, in history, historically, in my book, I show that if the atonement is a diamond, multifaceted diamond, that PSA is the table cut. And the table cut is the main cut that make, gives all the other facets their fire. And it was like his drop the mic moment, like boom, all the history and tradition. And like he goes back to all these different leaders and theologians. And I wish, I wish Greg, because I was like, listen to this. And I was like, ask him this question. I wish he had asked him, but what do the gospel writers say what do they emphasize 
That's great. I mean, you could have Athanasius, you got Augustine, you got Anselm, you got all these thinkers, you got you know, P.P. Walderstrom, you got all these people and they emphasize different things. But, but all the argument you have for like, like from a historical perspective, but but what do the original authors say? What is the uh, table cut that they, if there's a table cut, if there is, what do they put? Because I don't care. I would care more about what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Than, uh, you know, like the systematic theologians later. And all of the the authors of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of Jesus, and they have him, Jesus, place the uh, traditionally what's called the atonement. I'm getting away from the incarnation, life, the death, life, <laughs> but what traditionally is like just the cross, like how atonement is traditionally talked about. Jesus places the atonement in what practice and what scenario? You guys remember? Shares a meal. But what is it, the Jewish practice? What is it? Passover. So what's the story of Passover? It's these people who are enslaved. Yeah. Who are freed by a, let's call it like a foreshadowing figure of Christ. And God has victory over this demonic leader who's enslaved them. And then they're set free by the power of God to go worship and then go live their vocation as God's blessing to be a blessing to the world, right? So vocations in there to be, you know, kind of going back from Genesis and all that stuff. So Jesus, not the church mothers and fathers, Jesus places the atonement and the cross in the context of Passover, that we're to be Passover people, that there's this passing over and there's this freedom and this opening of the Red Sea and this victory over Pharaoh, which I think is representative of sin, Satan, and death. So I think Again, I'm playing my cards. I see kind of like if there is a table cut and if there is a trunk to the tree with lots of branches, I would, and William Lane Craig is way smarter than me. Yeah. Brilliant mind. And if you're listening, we'd love to have you as a guest. Yes. I would love to challenge you to your face, uh, William Lane Craig. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, was, I was just, l- yeah. the guy's awesome. You can reach us at info at whitewaterchurch.org. <laughs> um But I I find that to be a hard argument to say, like, my favorite PSA is table cut when you you see the the Passover is this primary thing. I know there's other overtones throughout those those narratives, but that's primary, and that's in all of the Gospels. If you've got that in all of the Gospels, that kind of resonance, like, that's saying something. And so that would be something I'd really challenge people to do is go and look at the individual authors, how they individually, like, portray the story and how Jesus portrays it. I think personally, like that's one of, that's my starting point. As we're talking about like approaching atonement as like metaphor and language, like John Bowen and some others have suggested, it's like a missionary approach. Like how do we communicate and translate the truth into the culture? Like how did God translate his truth into culture through the person of Jesus? Like he sent a person. And the cultural narratives we tell, the cultural narratives that we live in, the assumptions we have because of those cultural narratives and cultural lenses have an enormous impact on how we understand things and understand a story. So let me illustrate this, like why the story is so important and understanding like there's flexibility and we need to be flexible because we want people to be transformed. We don't want to just be right about our theory and have no transformation. We want to see transformation, mutual transformation, not just one over the other. So I'm going to tell you a story about what's called the peace child. So there's this missionary goes over to another culture and a tribe of people, and um, he's trying to communicate the gospel. He's doing everything he can to help reach this tribe, reach this culture. Nothing's working. 
they have like a meeting or like a tribal gathering where they, you know, share stories or kind of have their, their tribal time of, of learning, passing down knowledge and stuff. It's community time. So he gets the opportunity to share the gospel story and it's translated, you know, into their language. And so he shares the story about Jesus, shares the, the passion narrative or the narrative of Jesus going to the cross. So he shares the whole thing, you know, how Jesus is innocent. He's done all these things. Everyone cheers. He uh, has Passover, you know, communion with his, with his leaders and then he's betrayed by Judas. And it, like, as he's telling the story, he's getting ready to build up to the cross. And like the whole tribe starts busting out laughing. And he thinks like, he's not sure if they're like happy or what's going on. Like, why are they responding like this? And what had happened was, as he's telling about the betrayal of Jesus, the tricking of Jesus by Judas, he learned later that in that culture, one of the biggest virtues in that tribe was tricking people. And making them believe that you're on their side and then betraying them. So when they heard the story, they heard it the opposite of the way I would hear the story. Where I would hear Jesus is the hero and like Judas is the villain. To them, Judas was the hero because he tricked this idiot named Jesus and got Jesus put on a cross because he's dumb enough to believe Judas. And then Judas, he survives and all the other disciples are scattered. Judas is the hero. Jesus is the idiot in the, their, their cultural lens of, and their, their way of hearing it. And he walked away so depressed. You know, like, talk about, like, you're, you're sharing, like, the basic yeah. you know, atonement <laughs> and the basic. You're the story. You're waiting for people to be, have lives changed. You're, like, you're trusting the spirit to change people's lives. He was so disappointed. He didn't know what to do. And as he studied the culture and was continued living there, there was this story that all of a sudden just popped for him. It like the Holy Spirit spoke to him. And there, there was this cultural ceremony that he saw in the village where if there were villages that were at war, oftentimes they would battle each other so badly. Like if, you know, someone injured or hurt or there was a raid, they would have to like go get revenge and they'd go take out that many people or more. And then they'd go back and forth and back. And it would just get so bad that like whole tribes would be decimating each other and the wars weren't worth it. They all lost so much. And so they had developed this ceremony called the Peace Child. And they would just, um, like the two, let's say, chiefs or two leaders in the tribe, they would take one of their young children, maybe a newborn, a young child, Peace Child, and they would exchange it between these two warring villages. The leaders would take their, their child, their son, and they would give their son to the other, and the other would give it their son to that leader. And they would exchange the children and, and they would live as family members and sons in these new homes. That was the symbol of peace. So there was no more war. There was no, because what was ours is now yours. And like, there's like this idea that like, we're becoming family through, even though we hate each other right now, we are forcibly becoming family because this is going to destroy us. And peace is brought between this, this trade that happens. But here's the deal. If somebody kills or touches the peace child, the peace is off and the war is back on and worse than ever before. And it clicked for him when he heard that and saw that. So he went to the village another time. And this next time he told the same story the same way. And as the, he got to the point with Judas betraying Jesus, the, the crowd knew it was happening and they started laughing again. They thought it was silly, but he shifted one thing at the end of it. He at, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he said, but what you need to know is that, Jesus was the peace child. And immediately the tribe just like viscerally reacted because they thought Judas was the hero 
But then it changed it for them culturally when they realized, oh, wait, he's betrayed all the tribes. He's betrayed his people because he didn't betray just anyone. He betrayed the peace child. He's evil. He's the villain. And all of a sudden, the, the connection's made of like, oh, we are people in sin, and we've all, we all were part of killing the peace child in our own way. Maybe that doesn't fit in you know, your atonement theory, but that was the power of God coming in and gripping people's hearts. And that was in a language and in a, a metaphor that they could understand. And I think that's so important that we think through that lens. That's why I think the story is told in a story, in a narrative. I think about that story all the time. I think you used it in a message a while back and it's, it's stuck with me for a long time. I feel like that's a great place to end this episode. I've loved this conversation. It's been a blast to have Tobin here, and he's asked some very insightful questions. George, this has been extremely informative, and I hope we have the opportunity to do more conversations like this. Thank you, everybody, for hanging in there and listening, and we hope that you guys learned something, and we'll we'll see you guys next month. Yeah, this was awesome. Thanks, you guys, and anybody listening, thanks for tuning in. It's so fun to learn together, and I just encourage you to participate, ask questions, and these types of things that we're doing, this kind of podcast, it's built through community than through participation. So I just want to encourage anybody listening, just participate. Even if you disagree, we can unify around Jesus, but man, we can learn so much from each other with that attitude. Yeah. So thanks, you guys. Amen. You've been listening to Common Grace, a Whitewater Church podcast. To learn more about us, visit us online at whitewaterchurch.org or reach out to info at whitewaterchurch.org. Thanks for listening.